Welcome to the Heights Sermon Series Podcast, where each week you'll hear a new message that'll help you with your life shaped by the way. All right, man, good morning, everybody. What a great crowd in here today. This is a good crowd for a fight. So let's get ready to rumble. We'll do, I will just do this side against this side. How about that? So on the count of three, we'll stand up and just start punching the lights out of everybody you can see. And, uh, we, you know, we'll find out who's a winner in the end, this side or, or this side. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's kind of interesting to put out a sermon series that we call Fight and, and that we hang boxing gloves on. But that is what Jude is calling us to do. He's calling us to fight, that the fight's in here. But yeah, I may be letting that word fight kind of float around in here for the last month, maybe in a little different way than he meant, right? I, I, I mean, when we hear the word fight, we, we do. We think of anger. We think of arguing. Maybe we, we even think of punching and, and pushing. I'm guessing you already know that's probably not what Jude is talking about. But I want to, after all that promotion and two weeks already in, in fight in Jude. I kind of want to change the direction of that word fight and then see how that unfolds today. You know, Jude is not so much about who we're fighting against as who we're fighting for. Well, you realize how big a preposition is? How important? It's not who we're fighting against. It's who we're fighting for. So let's see that today. Let's turn to Jude for the third time in a row. I hope this won't be the last time you read Jude. Uh, I think we've gotten a good appreciation of this little often unread letter that takes place right before Revelation. If you're turning in your Bible, first time here with us, that's where you'll, you'll find it. It's the end of your Bible right before Revelation, Jude. And, uh, Last week, I read in the English Standard Version. Today, I was going to go back and read it in the New Living Translation, uh, but I left my New Living Translation Bible at home. So, we're going to read it out of the English Standard today, all right? So, let's look at verse 1 there. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who were called, beloved in God and Father, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend. Okay, that's, that's our key word. That word means defend. It means to fight. It means to show great effort, intense effort, the kind of effort you give when you're, when you're in a fight. Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in. Okay, where's the location of this fight? It's, it's in. It's not out. It, the fight we're not talking about is out there. It's in. It's inside. It's in here. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Okay, so who takes care of the unbelievers? You and me or God? God, okay. Uh, that didn't sound very confident, but I'm going to give you a chance to build steam here. 
Verse 6, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So who takes care of angels that step out of line? You and me or God? All right, we're, we're doing good. You're still going to keep building. Verse 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Who takes care of all the immorality out there? God. All right. Yet in like manner, what's in like manner? In the same way you saw God take care of all of these issues out there, okay, what is he talking about? Something going on in here. Well, look, what's going to happen? God's going to take care of that too. Yet in like manner, these people, what people? False teachers are also, uh, false teachers are relying on their dreams. Now let me stop right there. I haven't spent any time on that phrase. It is huge. Maybe the biggest phrase in this book, and I'm going to explain this even more a, a little bit later. Relying on their dreams. This, these group of teachers are telling people, hey, God's grace, God's kindness, God's smile, it's made all the sexual issues okay. All those things God used to say about you can't and don't and all that, no, that's all changed now. You can do that. Now, where do they get the authority to say that? From their dreams. The authority of what they said. And the issue isn't dreams. The issue is themselves. It's always the issue. What is the authority to say that? And they're relying on themselves. Well, they defile the flesh. They reject authority. And they blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment. But he said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. What people? The false teachers. They blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them. For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. And they perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. Boy, Jude really wants us to know what they're like, doesn't he? That's a lot of description there. It was also about these, what these? The false teachers. It's also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied saying, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000s of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and all the harsh things that the ungodly sinners have spoken against them. So again, it's God who's going to take care of these false teachers. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you... Okay, now that's something we just shifted, didn't we? Okay, remember back in verse 4, 3 and 4, we're called into a fight. 
And then everything that follows is God, 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 God's doing this, God's doing this, God's doing this. Whatever direction you go, God's got it. And then we get to verse 17, but you. Okay, so we issued a command. You got to contend. Now let me get to your part. And that's what he's doing in verse 17. But you must remember, beloved, that the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, they said to you in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God. Our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. 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 You know, every time I read that letter, I've said the same thing three weeks in a row now. Man, there's a lot going on in Jude. Short letter, but so many different things. Now, in all of these phrases, what does that mean? Why did he say that? Keep this in mind. The center of all this is dealing with false teachers. So it's really important that we know who. Who who are these false teachers? How do we identify them? The first thing to understand is a false teacher doesn't have to have a title and a false teacher doesn't have to be standing up front. Oh, it certainly includes me. You, you, you've got to watch me. You've got to watch the Sunday school teacher. You've got to watch that person that's saying, hey, let's do this Bible study, whether it's at work or, or in a home. Obviously, it's the person who's teaching, but it's not just a person up front. It's not just a title. It's anybody who is influencing people in the body of Christ with worldly ideas. With, with ungodly ideas. That would be a false teacher. Now that's a big thing to call somebody a false teacher, isn't it? Here's where you nod your head. Yeah. Yeah, it's a big deal to say, hey, you're a heretic. Hey, you're apostate. How do we understand those words? How do we apply them? When do I begin to see you or you see me as a false teacher? Let's think about that just for a second. So let's take a, a, a subject, eschatology. Eschatology is the study of all those things related to the return of the Lord. I have worked hard at my eschatology. I've worked real hard. It's a favorite part of theology for me. And I know really, really well why I believe what I believe. I am premillennial, pre-tribulational, and I'm ready to argue and debate anyone at any time, right? I don't even need notice. You don't even need to give me a chance to prepare. Let's go. Let's do this. Okay? So that's me. Just stick with the word pre-mill. Let me throw out another name. And I could throw out lots of of names, but I'll I'll throw out one. R.C. Sproul. R.C. Sproul's passed now, but uh, he was one of the really, really great theologians of the 20th century. R.C. Sproul loved God. Best I could tell and see, he loved God with all his heart, soul, mind. And I would say R.C. Sproul worked hard at what he believed. He worked hard at understanding the scripture and communicating that scripture. I would also say R.C. Sproul's smarter than me. And I'm not being humble. I'm just saying the dude was really, really smart. You know, I've noticed this too. 
A lot of theologians are really smart. Just use their initials. J.I. Packer, A.W. Tozier, R.C. Sproul. And so it dawned on me, hey, stop calling me Randy. From this day forward, it's R.T. Hahn. You got to say the whole thing. R.T. Hahn. I feel smarter saying it. R.T. Hahn. Okay, so, but, so you, you've got that. Now, R.C. Sproul is amillennial. Now, if you know amillennial, they're, they're not kind of the same. They're different. They're very different. One of us, now, as I said, R.C. Sproul's passed away. He, he's in heaven with the Lord right now. So he knows I'm right now, okay? I mean, you, you get to heaven, you put it all together. But if, if I'm teaching pre-mill and he's teaching on-mill, one of us is wrong. Does that mean one of us is a false teacher? How, how about this issue? I mean, maybe you're in on eschatology or not, but we all at some point in our life think about baptism. Man, folks, I tell you what, I'm just as convicted about baptism as I am in my end times theology. You know what the Bible shows us? That 100%, not 99.5, 100% of the people that were baptized in the New Testament were baptized by immersion. They went under the water. Why, why come up with something different than what we're shown. 100% of the people baptized in the New Testament were baptized following a profession of faith, saying, Jesus Christ is my Savior and Lord. And yet, half the churches today, maybe more than half the churches today, denominations today, baptize by sprinkling. And there's a very functional reason for baptizing by sprinkling, because they're baptizing infants. I don't see that in the scripture. I know how they got to where they got. I know that argument. They too will die and go to heaven and find out I was right. Okay? But we're, we're, we, we look at the scripture differently on that. Is either that pastor or me a false teacher? Is that church or our church apostate? Again, I would say no. Yeah, we're coming to the scriptures. We both love God. We're both filled with his spirit. We're trying to understand what it says. And yet we've landed in a little bit different place. So what's the line you cross from disagreeing, coming to a different conclusion, to actually landing now as an apostate? Okay? I would say it's, are you leaving Christianity when you teach that? Okay? You're not leaving Christianity when you baptize by sprinkling. You're not leaving Christianity on your view of the end times. There are essential elements that go into building the Christian faith. I would say it this way. Listen, I don't know what you're making, but if there's not an egg and there's not flour, you ain't making a cake. You may be making something you want, but it's not a cake. Okay, so that's what I'm talking about here. There is an essential list of things that go into the ingredients of giving us what Christianity is. When you leave this list, we're not disagreeing about what's in Scripture. You're leaving Christianity at that point. So what would be in a list like that? Which by itself is a good question. Who made up the list? Okay, well, it's not as much a person as there's kind of a universal understanding. And I think you'd find all the lists pretty close. I've got one up here for you. Now, right away, notice I said essential truths, and I've got a name there, Chuck Swindoll. Now, the reason Chuck Swindoll's name is there, he wrote a commentary on Jude. And in it, he's talking about this. And I said, hey, this is going to work perfect for what I want to say. And I looked at his list and I said, I'm just going to use that. And I copied it word for word, verse for verse. That is exactly what's in his book. 
So it would be right for me to give him credit for that, right? Having said that, that's not Chuck Swindoll's list. He, he didn't create that. He didn't give us that. The Orthodox Church for centuries has acknowledged these are the key pieces, the key ingredients of our faith. You might find a, a list maybe a little bit longer. I don't think you'd find it any shorter. You may find it worded a little bit differently, but that's basically the list. So what's on that list? Well, the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture. Now, I don't want to say one thing is more important than the others. But when you leave the authority of this word, then everything else, we're just making it up as we go. Everything else is what I would call religion. Hey, you build your religion, I'll build my religion. You build your way of doing it, I'll build my way of doing it. You look at it the way you want to look at it, I'll look at it the way I want to look at it. But once we have a canon a standard, an authority, then we're all working from this. Do you realize if you take out number one, how do you know anything else on the list? You can't discover anything on that list by your intelligence, your spirituality, your observation of of people in the world. No, I'm I'm going to get to that through the Word of God. And so our standard, what we believe here at the Heights, is that this is the holy, inspired, inerrant, Word of God. When it speaks, it speaks with authority. I don't get to say, well, that's not really how culture looks at things anymore. Well, that's, that's not really the way we do this today. No, I get to obey because this is what God has spoken. So that, that's really the key, a key one there. The triunity of God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, co-equal, co-eternal, Three persons in one Godhead. Incredibly difficult to understand, and yet what the Holy Word of God reveals to us. Uh, on, the, uh, the, on people, the fallen condition of humanity and the need for God's grace. Those are put together because we have fallen so far, we can't work our way out. There's no merit. There's no work of ours that's going to get us out of the fallen condition we are in. It's going to take not just a work, but a gracious work. We're not deserving of the work. We have not earned the work. We can't pay it back. It's going to take the grace of God to get us out of this. On the person of Jesus, the virgin birth, full deity and humanity of Jesus, his sinless life. Are there other things to know about Jesus than those things? Yeah, yeah, there's a whole lot more to know. Those three things are central and key to everything else you're going to learn about Christ. They're central and key to everything going on on the cross. You can't leave those things. Every cult, every single cult is going to disagree with us on the word and on the person of Jesus. Those are the two biggest places you're moving toward uh, something that is, is false. Uh, the substitutionary death of Christ for our sins and his miraculous bodily resurrection. Obviously, that point is the gospel. That is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. When you read 1 Corinthians 15, it'll actually say, hey, if this isn't true, we got nothing. We got nothing. It's not like, oh, okay, that didn't work out. But hey, look how big the Bible is. We got lots of other stuff. No, if we don't have the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, we got nothing. Okay? The ascension of Christ and his present ministry in the life of a believer through the Spirit. And then the literal future return of Christ to the earth. 
Now you say, wait a minute, that last one's on the list, but I thought you said you and R.C. disagree about that. No, we do not. R.C. Sproul and I agree exactly the same that Jesus Christ is returning to this earth physically, visibly, bodily to reign. We disagree on maybe some of the events and how that unfolds. But that it's happening, yes, we're in total agreement. So any of those areas, when you change those, when you move away from those, we're no longer talking about disagreeing about something. You're leaving the Christian faith. And if you're leaving the Christian faith but staying inside the body of Christ, influencing, then you are a false teacher, an apostate, and a heretic that we're called to deal with, right? Okay? Now, you may be looking at that list and going, now, wait a minute, I've read Jude three weeks in a row now, and I don't see anything on that list that Jude was talking about. You see number one on the list he was talking about. That's why I pointed out number eight. They said, hey, God's grace has now said no more sexual issues. You you do you. Your sex, your sexuality, your identity. God has said, man, my grace covers that. You, You just do what you want there. Now, at this point, you and I should say, what verse do you find that in? Help me understand that. And they said, well, we're not getting it from a verse. We're getting it from our dreams. And they could say a thousand other, they could say anything they want. When they're not saying, let's turn to the scripture, then they're saying there is an authority that is now trumping, that is now superseding God's authority. God said, don't do this. No, 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 no. We've got a new rule now and it undoes all that. Okay, that's fine that you're saying that, but tell me where you got that information. And their authority is themselves. So what they're attacking right here is the inspiration and authority of God's word. That's what they were doing in Jude. Folks, that's what's going on today. You know, the last three weeks have been very heavily illustrated in the area of sex and sexuality. Okay? It it could be all kinds of sins, right? It's not just sexual issues. But I have focused on that because that is the dominant theme and issue in the United States of America right now. I didn't make it that. They did. I didn't say you have to believe and think just like I do or else. They said that. I'm also addressing it because, well, guess what? Nothing's new under the sun. 2,000 years ago, the exact same thing was going on. Now, here's the kind of statements that say this isn't our only authority anymore. We can start reading into this and getting our own ideas. We say things today like, you know, Jesus didn't even talk about homosexuality. You ever heard that? Okay. Entirely wrong statement. Okay. Because now I get it. I don't expect the world to understand this statement, but you and I should. Every word from Genesis to Revelation is Jesus' words. His words are not limited to the four Gospels. Now, I get what they're saying. They're saying in his earthly life, when he walked around, he never actually used the word homosexual. He never actually addressed that. No, he didn't. Well, no, he did. But let's go with no, he didn't. You know, he, he didn't use the word homosexual. You know what else he didn't use? He didn't use the word incest. So should we go ahead and put that on the table as okay? You, you, you know, to, he, he, didn't, uh, he didn't use the word bestiality. Should, should we put that out there and say, that's now okay because Jesus never said anything about it. No, I don't think that's exactly it. 
You, you know, when we say Jesus is, you know, he's gracious, he's kind, he's the nice part of God. Uh, you know, Jesus actually addressed a lot of things sexually. Remember in Matthew 5 when Jesus said, hey, y'all have heard it said, Old Testament, you know, when God was angry and mean, did all kinds of judging. You heard it said, God said, don't commit adultery. I say to you, you're just as guilty if you lust. Now, I don't know about you, that doesn't sound to me like Jesus is loosening things. Sounds like he went over there and tightened something a little bit up, even more, right? And did he actually address these issues? And the answer is yes, profoundly he addressed these issues. One, every time he talked about marriage, he said one man, one woman. God made them male and female. So he did actually address it. Second way he addressed it is every time he used the word, this is a Greek word, pornea. In your translation, in your scripture, it'll always be translated sexual immorality. Now, I don't know what thought, what idea, what image comes to your mind when you hear the word sexual immorality. My guess is, if you're like me, probably just like one thing. You don't think of a list of things, just one idea comes to your mind. Oh, that's, that's sexual immorality. But when Jesus said that word, more importantly, when his listeners, when his audience heard that word, they knew he was talking about homosexuality, bestiality, incest. He was talking about sex before marriage. He was talking about sex after marriage with somebody other than my spouse. That word means all of those things. And the audience would have understood that it meant all of those things. And nobody listening to Jesus would say, he never addressed that. Because he did address it. But we come back today and we say, well, it's not really there. And then we create a new sexual ethic. And where does it come from? What's our authority for this ethic? The world. Because our culture is just profoundly advanced. Look how we've evolved. I mean, we don't kill anybody anymore. Oh, wait, no. Oh, well, we don't lie to anybody. No, no, we still do that as much as they did 2,000 years ago. Oh, we don't cheat on each other. Mm -mm, Forget that. Matter of fact, can you think of anything we've gotten better at in 2,000, 5,000 years? Okay, we make a really cool phone. I got it. I got it. That's one Oh, but we have such a better understanding of, of love than, than they do in there in the church. You see, they just say things and we just, we just take it. And where's the authority? We actually have churches today drawing their authority from the culture, saying we've got to come in and change God's word, massage God's word, ignore God's word because of how we see things today, how we understand things today. And what's interesting, every church that is... Marrying same-sex marriages, every church that is ordaining uh, homosexual pastors, and every one of those, their view didn't change during COVID. Their view didn't change in the last five or ten years. Their view changed, 100% of these denominations changed 75, 80, 100 years ago. Not when they were discussing something about sex and sexuality, but they were discussing whether this is the holy, inspired, and errant word of God or not. And those churches walked away from that a hundred years ago. And every year, every decade, there's a new illustration of how this no longer speaks. 
We now let the culture tell us what that good is. That is what we're contending with. We're not contending with them, whoever them is out there. We're contending with each other in here, for each other in here. And now we finally get to the close of Jude. Five commands. There's five things you and I are told, verse 17 and following, five things you and I are told to do as we contend for the faith. Number one, remember. Remember. Jude says, hey, you know, the, 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 the apostles already told us this was coming. That's a, that's a reference to scriptures. Hey, you go to Matthew, you go to John, you go to Peter. They all said there's going to be people mocking the authority of God's word. There's going to be people leading us away from God's word. Now, how important is the word remember? Remember that you've already heard this. Another way to say remember is you got to brace. You can't walk naively through the world. And here's the sad thing, folks. You can't walk naively through your own church. Without understanding, there is a battle for your soul and for your mind. And that battle will be played out in ideas. You know what I'd love to say? I'd love to say, hey, as long as I'm pastor here, you're safe. And y'all would be thankful that I said that. Maybe applaud and we'd, woo, look at Pastor R.T. Hahn. Look at R.T. Hahn. You know, I can't promise you that. You know, when I go home, I'll get, I'll get there in an hour. When I get home, I'm not saying I'm preaching for another hour. When I get home in an hour, you know what I want to do? I want to do the same thing you want to do. I want to let my guard down. Don't you want somewhere in life it's safe? Somewhere in life you don't have to be braced. You don't have to be on defense. That you can just let the guard down and relax. I mean, we all think that of our homes. I hope we, that's what we want in our homes, isn't it? And I know a lot of us. Man, that's what I think of the church. This is a spiritual home. This is a spiritual family. I want to be able to come in here and let my guard down a little bit. And Jude's saying, no, don't let your guard down. You know, I have, I have a lot of control over what is said from right here. I have a, some, but a little bit less over what's said in a room somewhere else. And boy, I'll tell you where I have almost no control at all. This is why I can never make a promise that you can let your guard down in here. I have no control over conversations that happen out in the concourse, on the way to the car. Because here's what I know beyond a shadow of a doubt. And I love the Heights Baptist and I love every one of you with all my being. But we give each other ungodly advice in here. We, in, when, when somebody in here is living in an unbiblical way, doing something is wrong, one of us will encourage that, smile at that, and be okay with that. I'm not thinking of a specific example. I'm not thinking of a specific person. I'm thinking of humanity. And I'm thinking even of humanity inside the church. And sometimes just to be nice, we just smile and nod our heads as they're saying, I really believe God's leading me to do. And they say something, no. No, God is not leading you to do that. I don't even have to pray about it. But very rarely are we going to say that to each other. We smile and we encourage. And and that person leaves. Well, they support me up there. They believe. I'm not just talking about sex, folks. Any and a thousand things. So yes, even in here. It doesn't mean we don't trust each other. It doesn't mean we don't love each other. But I've got to stay braced. I've got to realize ideas are incredibly significant and they shape direction of my heart and of my mind. So I got, I got to remember, number two, I got to keep. I got to keep myself in God's 
love. I'm going to give you two ways to do that. Number one, keep your eyes on the cross. Incredibly cliche-ish, isn't it? But if you're wondering if God loves you, and how could a, a God who loves me say, don't do that or do this, just keep your eyes on the cross because nobody's ever profoundly loved you like that. Nobody has ever said like that, that that's what you're worth. Nobody's ever done for you what it takes to have no shame, no guilt, to have a relationship with God and to live in heaven with him forever. God profoundly loves you. So I got to keep that front and center. And remember, he's coming back. Over 20 years ago, I started praying every single day in my prayers. I pray, Lord, may I see your return. May that be the great desire of my heart. And I pray that because every, it's, it's usually the last thing I pray. Because everything else I prayed for also represents desires, right? And do you realize you've never prayed a prayer that is not ultimately, fully, finally answered when Jesus returns? I've got to keep that front and center. That's the prize. Straight sex is not the prize. Marriage between one man and one woman, that, that's not the prize. My way, that's not the prize. Jesus is the prize. Jesus is the prize. Jesus is the prize in everything you've ever wanted. That takes some development to sometimes understand that and see that. But Jesus is the prize. And I've got to keep myself in God's love. I've got to recognize how the devil and the world work. They tempt. Do you know we tempt today the exact same way? Satan is not creative. He's incredibly repetitive. And what you see going on today, you can go back to Genesis chapter 3 and see Satan doing the exact same thing. By the way, here I'm doing a a short letter in the Bible, three Sundays. When we come back after Easter, I'm going to do an incredibly long series and an incredibly long book of the Bible. We're going to be in Genesis pretty much for the rest of the year after, after Easter. So we'll be in Genesis 3 soon. But in Genesis 3, you know what you hear Satan walk up to Eve say? Did God really say... Now, he doesn't explain what he means by that. He doesn't prove that God didn't say that. He doesn't have to do any of that. He just has to toss the idea out there and let you run nuts with it. Did God really say? Folks, that's what we've been talking about all morning. Did Israel, I mean, I know you say it's God's word, but I mean, how do we really know? Right? I mean, you can't really. I mean, hey, doesn't every religion have a holy book? Doesn't every religion say, our book's the best book? I mean, can you really... See, they don't have to explain the difference between the books or why this can't be... They just got to just toss the idea out there. Did God really say? And then they get us to doubt His goodness. What He said, you know what he said to Eve? Hey, you know, if you, if you eat that fruit, your, your eyes are opened. And you see... Some, all He does is just, just throw out this idea... That there's something more beyond God. There's something more beyond what God said no to or God said yes to. There's something more. That's the temptation. And and it's the same with us. How could a loving God say no? That's not, that's not, I, I mean, what kind of God, what kind of church, what kind of Bible is against people experiencing love? Now, they don't have to explain love. They don't have to explain how that works for an individual or a society over time. All I got to do is throw the idea out there and we fall apart. Yeah, what kind of God is he? 
Because clearly, if he was loving and he good, he wouldn't say no to anything. Does that, does that actually work anywhere in life? Aren't there some places? Can we say there's at least one or two places where the loving thing to do is to say no? So just the act of saying no is not, an act, is not the idea that God's not good, yet that's, that's the idea of a lot of people in the church well, we've got to do something about God saying no to this because that's, that's not loving and that's not good. Why? Does this thought, does this idea lead me back to God's word, appreciate his goodness, appreciate his love, work out his goodness and love, or is it a thought leading me away? So the first two things, remember and keep, that's for me. That's what I, I got. This is all just happening right here. Man, I got to be in God's word. I've got to be growing in God's word. I've got to be praying. I've got to do that alone. We've got to do that together because alone I am filled with error. So we need to shape ideas off of each other and make sure we're staying true. The first two things are right here. The next three things we're now moving out into contending for the, not 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 against the false teacher we're contending for those who are being influenced by false teachers and we do we do three things number 3 is we convince hey that might sound like it's real obvious Hey, when somebody's running over here with a wrong idea we got to sit down we got to talk we got to work that we got we got to convince them about the truth do you know the church has, does not have a great history with crush questions? You ask the wrong questions, we, we'll burn you sometimes. You ask the wrong questions, we'll tell you to get out. You ask the wrong questions, we're going to get mad. And a lot of times, because so, so many of us have made no real effort to really grow in the Bible, to really grow in our faith, to answer those questions. And so when my kid or a friend or somebody at church asks me a question I can't answer, I just say, shut up. Because you just need to believe. Man, I, why is that the church has had such a problem answering questions? Questions are not a denial of faith. Sometimes it's through the question that our faith gets the strongest. Man, when, when one of us is struggling and working through some ideas and questions, that's when we engage the most in the friendship. That's when we engage the most in the conversations. That's when we want to hear, we want to understand. You say, but I don't know how to answer the question. Then go get somebody who does. I, that R.T. Hahn, that's a smart dude. Right? <laughs> I'd, I'd ask him if I were you. So my first thought is, I, I've got to convince now, there's going to be a progression in these three words. There's a progression of my energy because there's a progression of this person falling away. See, when I'm at the convincing level, they're just asking some questions. They're trying to understand. But now we've reached a place where they're more embracing. They're embracing the worldly idea. They're embracing that action, that attitude. So now I've got to up my game a little bit. And Jude says, hey, you need to move now from convincing to saving. Not save like on a cross. Not, not save like their salvation is dependent upon me. But save like I'm standing out here on the street and they're in a burning house. What can I do to save them? You know what too many of us have done? I told them not to smoke in bed. Well, they're getting what they deserve. Why do we think 
That's just the answer. They're getting what they deserve. Hey, maybe they are. But I'll tell you what, if that's somebody I know and care about, somebody I love, I'm going to go in there and try to get them out. We can work out how and why they got there later. Right now, I just want to get them out of the fire. You see the energy? Warning, warning, warning. And I'll tell you something, folks. There's a, there's a big swing and a miss on my sermon today, and I don't know where I'm going to correct it. And that is, what does all this look like? Okay? I'm making real simple statements, but how do these conversations go? What does this do? But what I, I want to tell you is, man, when you get into that conversation, and they're slipping, they're going, and now you got to get to, to saving, we have an incredible propensity to make it much worse. We think, I'm going to grab a bucket of water, go put that fire on, throw gas on it. I'm confident many of us, not many, I don't know what. I'm confident we have actually, with some people, pushed them further from the faith, not pulled them back in. Because you see, when you get this kind of energy going, you're really starting to care that they're slipping. You're really starting to care. When we get that kind of energy going, you know what we do? We start calling names. This is where we call names. This is where we make judgments. This is where we take it personal. And Jesus actually said, it's not about you. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me, which you and I should care about a lot. But when they think they're rejecting us, we get mad, we get angry, we get ugly, and we turn it into a personal fight. And we make it worse. You say, wait a minute, I'm I'm looking. Where, Where are you getting that, pastor? I'm getting it from the word mercy. That's actually point number five. I'm reading back into number four with that. You know, it's interesting. Jude is a book about judgment. It's a book about fire. It's a book about ungodliness. You've read it all these times. Go home and read it today by yourself and count how many times the word ungodly is used. Count how many times the word fire is used. Count how many times the word judgment is used. This is a book God's saying, I got it and I can bring it. The word mercy is used four times. The word mercy starts the book. God plants that word. And then the other three times are all at the end. After you and I have read judgment, fire, judgment, fire, ungodly, ungodly, ungodly. Then God closes with mercy, 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 mercy. What does that mean? However I approach them, however I pray them, however we engage in conversation, mercy has to define it. That doesn't mean, when it says there about the contaminating the clothing, (laughs) that doesn't mean I can't walk away and they know I strongly disagree with how you're living. I strongly disagree with what you are believing. And yet they know that strong disagreement is there. What they should be overwhelmed by is the love and the mercy that you're showing them. Why? Because that's all any of us has at the end of the day. The only thing any human walking on this planet has at the end of the day, we're all running around trying to find worth and value and love. We're all trying to win. We're all trying to get even. We're all running. Man, at the end of the day, when it's all said and done, all I've got is hope in the mercy of God. I am not one bit different from that person I'm arguing with. At the end of the day, the only thing I can hold on to in my hand is the mercy of God. 
that has to define how we engage in all this. And that's where I'm saying my sermon falls a little short. What does it look like? What does it mean to, to engage in that and, and to converse with that? And a lot of it goes back to, man, I've got to keep. I've got to keep myself in God's word. I've got to be growing and developing in the faith. Hey, you don't have to be an expert on the counterfeit. You have to be an expert on the real thing. And it's, it starts today. How long have you been a Christian? How long have you been reading God's word? I mean, we have to take some ownership of our growth, right? We have to say, hey, I've got some responsibility to be growing and to get stronger. And I've got to remember ideas are important. I've got to keep myself focused on that truth. You know where, what Jude never addresses? We've got a whole book here about false teachers, and he never tells me what to do with them. Have you all noticed that yet? False teachers, false teachers, false teachers. Fight, fight, fight. Never tells us what to do with the false teachers. Because God's got that. God's still got that. We carry the mercy. God carries the judgment. Oh, doesn't that sound tough? God brings the judgment. There's nothing more merciful in the universe than God. God does not meet the definition of mercy. God is the definition of mercy. And when God brings judgment, he's not being unmerciful. When God brings judgment, he is being true and good and right to the individual, to society, to all of humanity. What God wants to bring is mercy. You know, again, remember back in the Old Testament where God's angry and he's just always throwing judgments and fires and floods. And Ezekiel, that book of judgment. One of my favorite verses, Ezekiel thirty-three, eleven: As I live, declares the Lord, tell them that I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. It is not God's pleasure to see them burn. It is not God's pleasure to see them get what they've got coming to them. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from their way and live. God wants them to know his mercy. So he says in Jude, judgment's real. It has to happen. I got it. You carry mercy. You carry with great energy, with great intensity. Just make sure it's defined by mercy. Our fight is not against people. Our fight is for people. Our fight out in the world is with the gospel. Our fight inside the body of Christ is with right, accurate, biblical teaching. All to be defined by one word. All to be described by one word. Mercy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you that it spoke clearly 2,000 years ago and 2,000 years before that. I thank you that it speaks currently and relevantly to today. I thank you, God, that I as an individual, that we as a church from one culture to the next, from one generation to the next, are not making up new rules not making up new ways. What is loving and right and good is always truth. What is loving and right and true is, is true for every person. It's true for 
every generation. God, may I, may we grow in our understanding of that, grow in our knowledge of that, grow in our ability to share it, and to do so with mercy. Oh, Lord, you know we we need your help. And we ask for that now in the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, I know all throughout this congregation, there are people having these conversations right now. They're, they're somewhere in that progression of, of convince, save, and have mercy. And they're, they're scrambling for words. They're trying to figure it out. Lord, I thank you for the truth that we saw on that list, that you live in us through the Spirit. You will guide. You will help. You will give words. I pray we remember. I pray we keep. I pray we're committed, actually committed to convincing, saving, and having mercy. It's in your name we ask all this. In the name of Jesus, amen.